all, I, I would like to thank uh, Hassan and uh, George Mason University for the invitation. I will be very honest with you. Uh, I am not in the same league as the people, the ladies and gentlemen who spoke here. Uh, by training, I am a lousy civil engineer. To be more specific, <laughs> I am the second worst civil engineer on earth. So that's, the reason I was invited is that I spend a lot of my time, something like 10 to 16 hours a day, reading about that. Everything. Uh, it's kind of, I'm addicted. And finally, <laughs> you know, all these behaving videos and you know, executions. I don't know, something, there's something really wrong. So finally, like a year ago, I started to uh, an update about a daily update about the Daesh news. I sent it to uh, some people here in DC and the UK and in Iraq uh, with help with some friends and family and Zanics, a lot of Zanics. But it's going well. Uh, I'm. I, I was just trying to understand what's happening. What is that? Why are they doing this? What's, what's, the, what's the reason? And the, and the best way to know about any group is to listen to them directly, to, to see what they are saying. So, following all Daesh media for all this time, uh, they are only saying four things, basically. Nothing more. Uh, first, they are always victorious. They don't lose. Even if they, they lose. They will, you know, attack with car bombs, they will shell it. They, Daesh official media doesn't report any losses. Second, they are a state, a caliphate that offers, you know, protection and identity and anything that any state can provide. Third, they have a caliph, a leader, that rules the entire caliph. Fourth, they provide justice. Sometimes I would ask myself, why would they show, they, they show all these beheadings and you know and so clear images and very close. Why would they do that? Because they are they, they want to emphasize on this point. The public punishment is, shows the caliphate's ability for justice. Let me go back up for a bit. Less than two years ago, we, we did uh, a kind of a survey in Iraq. Uh, we interviewed more than 600 people in each and every Iraqi service. And the reason for that research was not to generate answers. It was, it was the first stage of a bigger project that was, and we wanted to ask a question. We want to generate the questions for the, uh, for the project. And at that time, as some of the colleagues here said, that Daesh is not I think it was you know, Daesh is not the disease, Daesh is symptom. And we, we looked at Iraq as a whole, as a sick body. 
Within these interval groups, we identified four things that appeared in almost each and every interval group. And these issues were not that kind of religious. The first was the sense of victimization. Everyone in Iraq thinks his or her group is a victim. The Shia are the victims of the Saddam, the Arabs are the victims of the Arabs, and the Sunnis became victims after 2003. Second, weak national identity. Uh, even, you know, the Shia developed an, uh, uh, their identity because during Saddam's days they were not, you know, their Iraqi identity was kind of uh, questioned. The Kurds never considered themselves Iraqis. The Sunnis realized after 2003 that they are not Iraqis, that they are just Sunnis. So this problem exists in all Iraqi groups, but with different levels. Third, lack of leadership. Yes, many people, I mean, again, the Shia have their own traditional leadership and housing and Jordan and stuff. The Kurds have the Barzan and <coughs> The Sunnis had Saddam. And suddenly Saddam is gone. But still, that doesn't mean only Sunnis have, uh, have an identity problem. The Shia also, uh, I'm sorry, leadership problem. The Shia also had leadership problem. And it was very clear in a certain group of Shia Iraqis, the more tribal, less educated uh, people in rural areas and the poor areas in Baghdad, like in the city. I will give you an example. We asked uh, one of the Sadrist leaders, why did you become a Sadrist? Why did you follow Muhammad Sadr, Sadr instead of Al-Sistan, who is the representative of the traditional Shia in the Shia? He said, when Hui died, the previous merger, <coughs> the tradition is people go to the emerging clerics and ask them religious questions to judge who has more knowledge, who can answer the question in a better way. He said, I went with my question to all the clerics in Najaf at that time, and other Jardi, and only Muhammad answered my question. So I followed him. So what was your question? He said, I asked him, how much is the kilo of tomato? <laughs> what? <coughs> this is, he said, look, I don't want anyone to teach me how to pray. I know how to pray. I don't want anyone to teach me how to read the Quran. I want someone to lead me. And no one can lead me if they don't understand where I come from. At that time, it was the, the most difficult days of the sanctions. People, I mean, your monthly salary can barely buy you two kilos of tomatoes, one kilo of sugar. It was really hard for people. So why would I go to someone like Ali Sistani, who doesn't know that? He doesn't go out to the market. He represents a certain group of upper middle class Shia. He doesn't represent him. 
we come to this day. Muqtada Sadr inherited his father's followers. That never happened before. Muqtada Sadr is not a cleric. He is not a marja. <coughs> so why would millions of people follow him? The same problem. They want a leader. They don't want a cleric. They don't want someone to, to pray with them. In fact, Muqtada Sadr, in his speeches, he insults his people. Jahala, jahala, jahala. He is angry, like they are angry. He is not educated, and they are not educated. He speaks their language. And Muqtada Sadr has something. I saw him once. His clothes were old. I know that he's a village guy, but he wasn't, you know, he represents the poorest of the poor. So it's a matter of representation, it's a matter of leadership. If we look at Baghdad, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, Allah al-Baghdadi, he, he is the same. He is not your typical Afghani-born, you know, al-Qaeda. No. He was from the same establishment that ruled Iraq before 2003. He was a mosque imam, which meant that he had to get a security clearance from the vice president, no less. This is how he would become a mosque imam in Baghdad. He was from the old line Sufi school in Iraq. So he is not a Salafi, he is not a Takfiri. So why do people follow him? Because he's like them. And this is the reason. He and before him, it was Abu Omar al Baghdadi, were chosen to lead what I, I, I would love to call the insurgency instead of Daesh or whatever. So, Daesh, with, if we see now, we have four points in Daesh media that respond to four points in Iraq. There is a, a lack of leadership. Daesh gave us a caliph. There is a sense of victimization. Daesh is giving us victory. There is a lack of national identity. Daesh gave us a state. There is a, a, a feeling of uh, injustice. Daesh gives justice publicly. So Daesh is responding. Daesh never came up with anything new. It's just responding. Now let's go outside Iraq. Do we have the same problems? Absolutely yes. Daesh media is only one part, is the tip of the iceberg of the Arab media for the last maybe 50 or 60 years. It's basically the same. But Daesh as a radical organization, they just go to the extreme. Because everything Daesh is saying, you can hear it on Al Jazeera, you can hear it from every fan Arab nationalism media outlet, you can hear it from any Islamic media outlet, you can hear it from any socialist media outlet. Because these are the three types of thinking that control the Arab world, and they are still, you know. And so Daesh just, just took things to the extreme. They are repeating, 
exactly what the communists used to say. <coughs> they are repeating what the pan-Arab nationalists, their natural enemies, used to say. And with all these contradictions, you know, still Daesh has, uh, you know, people are following Daesh, people are listening to Daesh, people are following uh, its humanists. Um, the oversimplification of is Daesh Islamic or non-Islamic is just oversimplification. It's much deeper than this. Um, now, let's go together. Let's go to the real problem. We said in Iraq, there is absence of rule of law, absence of uh, leadership, uh, absence of justice, sense of victimization. Don't these things exist in areas outside the Arab and Islamic world? Rule of law, definition. The restriction of the arbitrary exercise of power. That's one of the definitions. In many countries, there is, inside the country, there is a rule of law. Especially in the West, in democratic countries, you have rule of law. But as, as the world itself, is there rule of law? Are we able to prevent the, or to restrict the arbitrary exercise of power? No. So now, I... My, my point from this is to say that that is just the beginning. It happened to happen in Arab and Islamic uh, context, but it's just the beginning. Other things will happen. Other organizations will come up. As long as we have the absence of rule of law on the global level, as long as we have a weak United Nation, we will have more groups like Daesh may be even more extreme, and they won't even be Islamic. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it.